Take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians 3 this morning. Colossians 3. Uh, we will get back uh, perhaps next week to our study in the book of Acts and cover the second half of that book. But I do want to present a special challenge today uh, to the men of our congregation on Baptist Men's Day. And I want to ask a question this morning. What is the preoccupation of your life? What is the preoccupation of your life? Colossians 3, 1 to 17. As you find your place in your copy of God's Word, uh, let me go over a few things in the church I do want to make you aware of. You'll notice in our messenger this morning, you'll see our Lottie Moon uh, Christmas offering for international missions. And you're to be commended on your giving because to date that is almost... $20,000 above our goal. But the reason I want to mention that is to let you know that today, the last Sunday in January, is the day that we traditionally close that offering out. So keep that in mind as you leave this morning or tonight. If you want to put in something additional, uh, today would be the day uh, to do that. And men, I do want to encourage you to, to get involved in the men's ministry in the church we have a men's basketball league coming up, and that's more than just getting out there and, and having a good time playing ball. They pray together, encourage one another, witness. It's a great outreach tool for the church. And so come out and be a part of that. And then uh, lastly, I do want to ask you this morning to be in prayer for Garrett Inslee and her family. As some of you are aware, Garrett was the longtime administrative assistant in our church office and uh, of course once she and uh, Curtis began having children she uh, gave up that role but uh, this past Thursday Garrett's mom uh, went into surgery she had broken her hip and went in for just a routine hip replacement surgery and she threw a blood clot in the midst of that surgery, and she did pass away on the operating table. And so that service is tomorrow at Forest Hills Methodist Church in downtown Concord at 11 a.m. in the morning. So if you would be mindful of Garrett and just lift her up in your prayers. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
Father, we thank you for these passages we find in the New Testament that make it so clear to us what the priority of our life is to be. Lord, I pray that we would lay this passage down alongside of our lives and where you need to change us, that we would be submissive to that change. Lord, that our desire would be to be transformed into the men of God that you would have us to be. Lord, speak to us through this text. Apply it to every heart through the power of your Spirit. Lord, help us to be the men of God you've called us to be in our families, in this church, and in the community. That we will always be salt and light. That others would look at us. That we would be able to say to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ even as the Apostle Paul was able to say. And we'll give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Having just come through the playoff season in the NFL, I can guarantee you that the preoccupation of the New England Patriots is on two things. Number one, I hope they're preoccupied with thinking about their opponent, the Seattle Seahawks. No doubt, number two, they're thinking about this deflate gate and preoccupied with that. On the other hand, I can guarantee you that the preoccupation of the Seattle Seahawks would be on facing their opponent, the New England Patriots. Both of those teams, both of those coaches, and everybody involved is probably studying film on their opponent to the point that their opponent and their actions are becoming almost second nature to them. Well, folks, as believers, there is to be a preoccupation about our lives as well. You see, we're supposed to have one. And the stakes in what we're to be about are higher than any stakes that the world could ever approach. That's why Paul is writing the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is a book about focus. It's a book about Christ being the preoccupation of your life. You see that the Colossians were being taught bad things, and Paul needed to kind of come in and and provide a corrective. They were being taught what is known today as the Colossian heresy. It was a weird mix, a hybrid, a blending of Gnosticism on the one hand, which was a Greek philosophy, and Judaism, legalism on the other hand. Now Gnosticism said that Wisdom or knowledge gnosis, a special kind of gnosis that's only available to a few people is where salvation comes from. The Gnostics would say that salvation had nothing whatsoever to do with a person. It had nothing whatsoever to do with Christ, but it had to do rather, do you have this special gnosis? It was a heresy. And then on the other hand, there was Jewish legalism, which tries to say that you need to be justified in the sight of God through the keeping of the law. It is a works righteousness trying to achieve your own standing before God. A righteousness that's based on the law. And of course the Bible says no man will be justified on that basis either. Well again at Colossae there was a mixture of both of these being taught. And so Paul writes to them and he is urging them to accept no substitute for Jesus Christ. Because on the one hand Christ is the end of the law. He has fulfilled the law. And on the other hand, he is wisdom from God embodied in a man, the God-man. 
He's the one who created the universe and all that is out there and he holds everything together. And so the Christians at Colossae needed to make certain that nothing robbed them of their preoccupation with Jesus Christ. Whatever takes them away from a focus on Christ is nothing more than a cheap substitute and it'll not be long before the shine and the glitter wears off. Paul makes the point that everything in the Old Testament could be compared to a shadow that pointed to the reality. The reality is in Christ. And he's saying now that you have the reality in Christ, why in the world would you want to back up and try to to embrace shadows? And so the theme of the book could be found or could be summed up in Colossians 2, 6 and 7 where Paul says there, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith. Now today our preoccupations, I realize, are a bit different. The primary danger for us in the Western world is getting preoccupied with Either entertainment, or materialism, or perhaps both. It's long been said that we're not to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. However, I don't really see that as much of a danger anymore. I think our danger may be that we are so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. And John tells us in 1 John 2.15 that we're not to love the world nor the things that are in the world. The things of the world can dilute our devotion to Christ. The world and all that is in the world is a cheap substitute for Christ. And it'll not be long before that shine and that glitter wears off as well. And so in four brief chapters in the book of Colossians, Paul is trying to remind them, he's trying to establish the fact that Jesus Christ is to be the preoccupation for the believer. It's interesting how he does it in this passage we'll turn and look at today. He talks on the one hand about their position in Christ and on the other hand about their priorities that grow out of that position. Their position in Christ is that which God has done for them in Christ. Their priorities that grow out of their position are things that they need to do as Christians to make their lives a living sacrifice. So I guess what you could say every day in our Christian life, we're to try to narrow the gap between our position and our practice. We're to become what God has made us in Christ. Now men, what I want us to see this morning is that if we understand his logic here and we understand his point, it should be a no-brainer as to what our preoccupation in life is. If we understand who we are in Christ and what God has done for us, and what we have ahead for us in the future, it really shouldn't be all that difficult to adjust our lives accordingly. Now the first thing I want you to see with me this morning is we are to understand our new status. Our new status. Again, read with me verses 1 through 4. He says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now Paul uses indicative statements in these verses. Simple statements of fact that describe what has happened as a result of our redemption. And he covers four of them here. Four indicative statements that just point out in a matter-of-fact way what it is God has done for us in Christ 
what our new status is. Number one, he says in verse one, we have been raised up with Christ. When a person becomes a believer, God sees them as being joined to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death, the burial, and the resurrection are in essence applied to the life of every believer. When we're regenerated and converted and we trust Christ, then it's as though God applies everything related to Christ to our account. You see, the New Testament points out that Christ became our substitute. And so in a sense, when He died, we died. When He rose again, we rose again. There's a union that God sees between Christ and the believer. Now the benefit for us in much of that is still future, but it's as though God sees it as already done. We've been raised up with Christ. Christ was raised to be seated at the right hand of God and He has life. Christ has been raised up to eternal life, never to die again. And so through Him, we have eternal life. And that means that the grave no longer has to be our ultimate fear. He has taken the sting out of death for every believer. A second statement that he points out here is in verse 3 and he points out that we have died. You didn't know you were dead, did you? But you are. Don't go checking your pulse. You might say, wait a minute, you had my funeral and I wasn't invited? No, but, but you, you are dead in a sense. Your old man, the man without Christ, is dead. Do you remember how you once lived when you were under the mastery of sin and Satan? The old man did what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. The old man was governed by the desires of the flesh. What you thought about was what do I want to do and that's pretty much how we all lived our lives before we met Christ. What do I want to do? We were dictated by the desires of the flesh. But if you're in Christ, that life is supposed to be over. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. Your life B.C. before Christ no longer exists. And that's why John can say in 1 John that if you claim with your lips to be saved, but your desires have not changed... You still walk in the darkness. You have no love for the commands of God. You have no love for the Word of God. You have no love for the people of God, nor the things of God. Then you are a liar. And John puts it that point blank, that bluntly. If you say that all of this has transpired in your life and there's never been the fruit of change in your life, you've never been changed from the inside out to where you have new desires and you're still walking in the darkness, you're a liar. You can say all day long that you're a Christian. But you have no right to claim that you're a follower of Christ unless you've been changed. Now, unfortunately, Jesus said that's where most of the world is living. Most of the world is not saved. Jesus said, actually, there are not that many that are saved. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many travel that road. Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life, and actually, there's few on it, Jesus said. And so again, what you and I say with our lips will have no bearing whatsoever on what, what we hear on Judgment Day if our life is consistently giving us away as an unbeliever. But again, the converted man, 
The converted man has died. The old man has died. He is a new creation in Christ. A third statement that Paul makes in verse 3 is that your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're tucked away for safekeeping. You're preserved. You're, you're hidden from the judgment of unbelievers that is to come. One of these days, the unbelief of the world will be exposed and judgment, God's judgment will be unleashed. But that's not your destiny. It's not your destiny because your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so that means... Where he is, there you will be. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so when all the sin and all the wretchedness and all the unbelief of the world is exposed, you're safe. You're hidden with Christ in God. Folks, what do we do with our valuables? We hide them away. We, we lock them away. Well, God has, God has hidden you away. God has tucked you away. You're, you're, you're hidden. You're, you're out of the way of, of danger because you're God's own possession. Now, when I say you're, you're out of the way of danger, I don't mean the dangers of this earth because God may let you go through some of those dangers. He may let you go through some trials. But we are kept from that ultimate danger. That ultimate danger of the judgment of God that results in alienation from God, eternal separation from God. We are hidden away and kept safe from that because we belong to Christ. A fourth statement that he wants us to understand you will be revealed with Christ in glory. Look at verse 4 where he says that. You will be revealed with Christ in glory. At the second coming where Christ is unveiled. And the word here in verse 4 uh, when, he, when he says when Christ who is your life appears. That word appears there speaks of an open display. When he is unveiled for everybody to see where we're told in the scripture that two things are going to happen. Two things are going to happen when Christ appears. Number one, the nations are going to weep on account of him because everybody is going to see him for who he is. He's king of kings and lord of lords and it'll be eternally too late for multitudes. And so the Bible says they will weep. But a second thing that will happen is that there's another unveiling. When Christ appears, when he is unveiled, then Paul says here that his saints will be with him. We will forever be with him. And this is what he says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You will be revealed with Christ in glory. And so again, in these four brief, succinct statements, Paul has described a believer's new status. What our new status is as a result of being in Christ. 
Now, knowing that ahead of time, how should we live? You see, Paul's going to then change gears here to talk about the Christian response to the grace of God. The Christian response to the grace of God is not merely walking some aisle and saying that you believe. Remember, Jesus said there'll be multitudes that do that that are lost. He said many will come to Him in that day and say, Lord, Lord, and He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So what is real Christianity to be about? Seeing what a person's position in Christ is, if they're truly a child of God, then what is the practice that is to grow out of that? That's what he turns to look at next. And so what I want you to see secondly is that we are to live with a new orientation. We're to live with a new orientation. Now, it's interesting what Paul does next. Because he changes verb tenses. When he was describing the status of somebody who is really a child of God, when he was describing their status with those four statements we just covered, he used the the indicative tense, just simple statements of matter of fact. Now he changes to cover what our response to that ought to be, and and he, he changes the tense. He goes from indicatives... To imperatives. Imperatives, of course, are commands. And the first one is a present imperative. It's never-ending. It's ongoing daily in our lives. And look at what he says about that in verses 1 and 2. He says that we're to live with a new ambition. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, now here it is, this second part of the phrase, seek the things that are above. If the first is true, if you've been raised with Christ, which he's assuming they have been, and so some translations translate that word if with the word since. Since then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above. And then in verse 2 he says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And so we are to live with a new ambition. Like a compass points northward, we are to point to Jesus Christ. The believer is to be occupied or preoccupied with Jesus Christ and things that pertain to the kingdom of God. That ought to be your ambition and my ambition as a man of God. Now folks, how do most people in the world live? What is the preoccupation of most people in the world? Making a living and getting by. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6 about that? He said, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, all the necessities to your daily life. He said, for all the unbelievers, all the Gentiles seek after those things. That's the preoccupation of the man of the world who's not in Christ. He seeks after things in the world because that's all he's got. Jesus said, your heavenly Father knows what you need. You're more valuable than the sparrows. You're more valuable than the lilies of the field. He said, so seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. You see what he's saying? 
The difference between a man of God and a man in the world. Man in the world, his preoccupation is getting by the necessities of life. But Jesus says, for a man of God, our preoccupation is to be to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in fact, what Jesus promises here is if we will devote ourselves to his business, then he will devote himself to our business. If I will seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, then He will see to it that all these things I need in my life that the average man is consuming his life with, He'll take care of providing all of that. If I'll be after His business, He'll be after my business. Paul says, keep doing this. Keep seeking the things that are above. He also describes our new ambition by saying in verse 2, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. J.B. Lightfoot many years ago translated this, You must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. You must not only seek heaven, you must think heaven. Men, what do you value? What are you preoccupied with? What's your life about? What's the focus of your life? I remember two parables that Jesus told in Matthew 13 that really speak volumes to this. There were twin parables about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And a man out working uncovers that treasure. He buries it again. He buries it again. He goes and sells everything that he has. And he buys that field so he can have that treasure. Jesus said again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking after fine pearls. And when he finds one pearl of great value, he goes and sells everything that he has so he can buy that one pearl. Now folks, think about what Jesus is saying there. And think about this too. Who is the only one who knows what the other side is like that's been here? Jesus, right? Because what do we celebrate in the incarnation? That Jesus was in heaven, but God's, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So is Jesus qualified to speak about what's on the other side? You better believe it. And the one who's seen what's over there waiting for us, he said, the kingdom of God is so valuable that it is like treasure hidden in a field that a man finds and he goes and sells everything he has out of joy that he might buy that treasure, that field with that treasure. He didn't have to have everything he owned pried out of his hands. He didn't have to be arm wrestled. He didn't have to be convinced. When he saw the treasure and saw the value of it, Jesus said he gladly, he joyfully gave up everything else that he might have that. Now men, that says something to us about what the value of the kingdom of heaven is. And if I'm not living for that, it says to me, I'm messing up. Because what I'm giving my time and energies and life to pales in comparison to that. So seek and keep on seeking things that are above. Live with a new trend, uh, a, a new ambition. And then a second qualifying statement he makes to talk about our orientation. He says we're to live with a new attire. A new attire. He starts using this put on and put off language. Again imperatives. Verse 5. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices. And then in verse 12 he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Forgiving one another, put on love, be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So this language of a new attire, taking off and putting on. Think about being a manual laborer out in a, a field or a mill or something and coming home at the end of the day and your clothes are filthy and stinking. You take them off. You put them aside. You get in the shower. You come out clean. Do you put on those old things again? No, you put on clean clothes. That's the imagery that Paul is using here. The taking off and, and the putting on. Now folks, isn't it a shame that a lot of people spend more time choosing their daily wardrobe than they do thinking about their lifestyle? I wonder if you spent more time this morning thinking about what you were going to wear to church than you did thinking about how God might want to change your heart. Paul's point here is that because you're new in Christ and He's alive and He's dwelling in you, you can live differently now. Now, it's not automatic. That old man, while crucified, he's still there. The old man hasn't been fully eradicated yet. If you think the old man's been fully eradicated, just watch what happens this afternoon when somebody steals your parking space. Boy, that old man can bubble right to the surface again, can he? We've been saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And, and one, we, I, I should say we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin. But until then, the battle rages on, doesn't it? There's two natures inside of the believer the old nature and the new nature now the lost man only has the old nature he's dead in trespasses and sins he's lost he's alien, alienated from the life of God that's the only nature he has and if he dies in that condition he's going to spend eternity without Christ the believer has two natures. We still have the old nature, but we've been redeemed. We have the new nature. Now one day, the believer, when we're with Christ, that old nature will be gone and we'll only have one nature, the glorified nature. But for now, between our salvation and between the consummation of our salvation, while we're living life every day now, we've got both natures inside of us, the old man and the new man. Somebody says it's like having two dogs inside of me, a good dog and a bad dog. Somebody said, well, which dog wins the fight? And he said, whichever dog I feed. Whichever dog I feed. You feed in the flesh, feed in the spirit. Same battle Paul said he had in Romans chapter 7. Speaking as a redeemed man, he said, Oh, wretched man that I am. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man, who is going to deliver me from this? And remember what his conclusion was at the end of chapter 7 and then going into chapter 8? What's the conclusion of that battle? That victory comes through walking in the Spirit and feeding the Spirit. That's where the victory comes from. Through the Spirit-filled life we can put to death the things that are not pleasing to the Lord. 
Now notice the areas that are covered here, the things that Paul says we need to put off. Some people break them down in categories. Sins of the flesh, sins of the heart, sins of the attitude and the tongue. Sins of the flesh would be those things he mentions first. There in verse 5, he talks about sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Then he talks about sinful uh, or sins of the heart, evil desires and greed. And then sins of the mind, the attitude and the tongue. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. He's not trying to give an exhaustive list here. He's just trying to think about the whole of the Christian life. Whether it's my thoughts, whether it's my heart, whether it's my mouth, whether it's what I do with my hands and feet. Again, anything not pleasing to God through the power of the Spirit, it's to be delivered a death blow. But again, not only the undressing, but the dressing. And so in verse 9, he starts talking about the things that we need to put on. If we need to put off certain things, we also need to put on certain things. He says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, that seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. So a man of God needs to love truth. Because God is a God of truth. Remember what Jesus said about the devil? The devil is a liar and the father of lies. But God is a God of truth. And so a man of God ought to be honest in his speech. Then look down at verse 12. He just kind of groups some things together there that sound an awfully lot like the fruit of the Spirit that he talks about in Galatians 5.22. He, he talks there about compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and, and meekness and patience. Fruit of the Spirit. We need to put those on. Forgiving each other. Forgiveness is something else a man of God needs to clothe himself with. We need to bear with one another and forgive one another. And what's the motive? He says here, as God in Christ forgave you. I think of that story Jesus told in Matthew 18. That servant that went before the king and, and he had a debt he could never repay. In fact, in today's monetary values, it was something like $20 million that he owed. Could never repay it. He cast himself on the mercy of the king and asked the king to forgive his debt. The king did. The king Wipe this slate clean. Then that servant went out and he saw another servant who owed him $20. That's all. Just $20. And this guy who's just been forgiven $20 million is simply unwilling to forgive his fellow servant $20. And Jesus used that story to tell Simon Peter, Simon Peter, if you're going to be, if you really are a child of your heavenly Father, then His nature needs to be in you. If you can't forgive, it must mean that you don't have His nature. God forgave all your debt in Christ. So whatever anybody has done to you, is small by comparison of what we've done against God. And so Christians have to be forgiving. And then he adds to that, he says, put on love. I, I, I love what he does with this, because when he says, put, put on love, look, look what he adds to it. He says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so he strings all these things together that we're to put on, and, and he says, love is that quality that just kind of is the glue that holds all of them together. And then men look at this... Look at this next one. Big one. Verse 16. 
Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Word of God needs to dwell in a man of God. You know why? I think of what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He makes the point in 2 Timothy 3 that the Word of God was the instrument that God used in bringing about your salvation. Because through the Word of God, what do we learn? We learn of our sinful condition and our inability to save ourselves. And we learn that God has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save us. So through the Word of God, I learn of my sin. I learn of my inability to do anything about my sin. But I learn of God's love that He sent me a Savior. He sent me His Son, Jesus Christ. God uses the instrument of His Word to point that out. That's why Paul could say to the Romans in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is the instrument God uses in your salvation. And then Paul goes on to say to Timothy, just like God used that as the instrument in your salvation, God continues to use the Word of God as the instrument in your discipleship. To mature you in the faith. He says that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That equipping comes through the word of God. And so it ought not be a surprise to us that here Paul says to the Colossians, let the word of God dwell in you richly. As Christian men... We ought to constantly be in the Word of God. I started the service today on purpose reading that psalm, Psalm 1. That blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of sinners. His delight though is in the, word of, is in the law of the Lord and in that law he meditates day and night. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. And then a, a last thing I'll say, I've not covered every single one, but a last thing I'll say here that we're to put on. I want you to notice how Paul gets down uh, to verse 17. And it's like he realizes he's listing all these things out that we're to take off and all these things that we're to put on. And he realizes the list is getting long. And so all of a sudden he just kind of takes his pen up and he says, whatever you do, whatever you do in word, Deed, thought, do it all to the glory of God. Everything to the glory of God. That's to be the orientation of our lives. Folks, because we have a new status with God, if you're a believer, if you're a believer, you have a new status before God. If that's the case, then there ought to be a new orientation to your life, a new preoccupation to your life that flows out of that. We aren't to wait on heaven before we reflect the life of Jesus Christ. We're to reflect the light of the light and the life of Jesus Christ, even now. Even now. Would you pray with me, please? Men, do you need to pray today for a new preoccupation? Ask God to give you His heart. Ask Him to change your thinking. And of course, you've got to commit yourself to His Word because His Word is the instrument He's going to use to change your thinking. But do you need to pray for a new preoccupation, a new focus? Have you allowed cheap substitutes to fill your heart and mind? 
As the scripture says elsewhere, we, we have lived in the lust of the flesh and the things of the world long enough. It's time for those things to be put aside and seek the things that are above. And believe it or not, that'll change everything about your life in the here and now. And folks, by doing so, your life's not going to be diminished. It's going to be enriched. Think about it this way. Those who are in heaven, do they live on a higher plane or a lower plane than we live on? They live on a higher plane. So even now, if I'm thinking about those things that are above, is that going to diminish my life or is that going to enhance my life? It's going to enhance my life. You and I were created for better things than this world has to offer. The problem is we're too easily satisfied. Again, as Lightfoot translated these verses I mentioned a while ago, seek heaven and think heaven. Seek heaven and think heaven and see how your life changes. See how your relationships change. Lord, do your work in us. We thank you for the men of the church. God, help us to be the men of Christ that you have called us to be. May our lives be lived even now according to heavenly standards and what you have waiting for us. And Lord, daily help us to submit our lives before you so you can whittle away and help us take off what is not pleasing in your sight. And you'll give us wisdom and strength to put on what is pleasing to you. Lord, help us through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, please? I want you to think about your preoccupation, your focus. What is it that your time and energies and resources are spent on every day? Is it the things of the world? If it is, confess that. Say, God, give me that new preoccupation today. Give me that new focus. I could be talking to a gentleman here this morning who's not even begun the journey of the Christian life. I dare say there's, there's probably a number of people here this morning who are not, not Christians. You've never been born again from above. We'd love to pray with you this morning about that. To ask God to do that in your heart and life. To pray with you as you submit your life and yield your life to Christ. Wouldn't you like to begin that journey today? Somebody will pray with you. What is it you need to put off in your life? What is it you need to put on? Will you start today?